The following announcement has been paid for by Journey into Wrestling. Things seem to be changing around here, and I'm talking podcasts, brother. Journey into Comics Network and no JIW? Where's the wrestling? That's just it, bro. We're making a comeback. JIW has taken over. Butt stuff, podcastrophe, the poor rapport, all these new guys on the scene. We're about to show them what podcasting is all about, Chico. Why don't you tell them when they can hear us, Nate? Every other Wednesday, right here on the Journey into Wrestling Network. Anything less is just too civilized. Following is a Journey to Comics Network production. From the suburbs of Chicago and Illinois, this is The Poor Report with your host, Andrew Poor. So I minded the gap and now I am back. Welcome to another episode of The Poor Report. Now, for those of you who tuned into last week's episode, you might have noticed that you didn't hear my voice. And if you watched any of their shows on Network or yesterday's JIC, you know that last week was a part of the Fool's Week, which was where all of the hosts and all of the shows kind of got scrambled up and some hosts did one show, some hosts did other shows, and no one was doing their own show. So no one drew from the, the cup their own show. And the hosts of Literature did my show last week, which is great. It was fine. They talked in the the fantastical world of Harry Potter and the injustices of that society. So it's actually an interesting listen if you go back to that. But we have to go back from the world of fiction and into the world of current events in the world, the landscape we live in today. And a lot happened since, I guess, the two weeks ago on my last episode where I was talking about things. So... I just want to jump right in. There's a few things to talk about. Obviously, there's always Trump news, because that's the nature of what we do. And there's some Facebook news, which is always fun for everyone. It's been kind of a crazy uh, time for me as well, uh, with wedding stuff going on and house hunting. So maybe next month or in a couple weeks, there may be some interesting episodes coming from me. I'm going to try and record a couple topic episodes ahead of time. Just in case I don't have the time to get you the current events episode every week like I normally do. But I want to make sure I get you some content from me. But if I end up moving or what ends up going on there, I want to make sure you still get your content. Because I care about you, my listeners. But let's just jump right into the show for this week. And kind of first on the list involves something that started about a week ago. So... Uh, this is from a CNN article called Trump began this the week tweeting about the border and now he's sending troops. So it started with a tweet last Sunday morning. Um, President Donald Trump tweeted about a caravan of Central American migrants heading towards the U.S.-Mexico border. By Tuesday, he'd kick things up a notch, making a surprise announcement at a luncheon. He plans to send the military to guard the border. The next day, Trump signed a memo warning of a crisis at the border and calling for National Guard troops to help solve it. Officials are still detailing how many troops will be deployed, exactly where they'll go, and what their mission will be, and how much it'll cost. But White House spokesman Sarah Sanders said Friday that plans are in the works. We hope to have the National Guard on the ground as soon as possible, she said. Here's a quick look 
at how we got here and what could happen next. So what? why is this happening now? Trump often focuses on the border dating back to his campaign promise to build a big, beautiful wall. Awesome. But this week, reports about a large group of migrants heading north triggered a fresh tweet storm from the president. The migrants are part of a so-called caravan trekking across Mexico as part of an annual effort to raise awareness about migrants' plight while also helping some make their dangerous journey. Many of them say they're fleeing violence and poverty and seeking asylum. Reports on Fox and Friends about the caravan Sunday morning describe the group as a small army of migrants marching towards the United States. Trump's first tweet about the caravan came soon afterward because, as we know, he watches... Fox and Friends and all the Fox News morning shows every morning, and then that's how he gets his news and what he wants to talk about for the day. Which is great for a president who should be getting daily briefings and all that, but we know Trump doesn't really like to read, so we're kind of going this way. His tweet said, border, pol- border Patrol agents are not allowed to properly do their job at the border because ridiculous liberal Democrat laws that like catch and release, getting more dangerous, caravans coming, Republicans must go to nuclear option to pass the... Pass tough laws now. No more DACA deal. DACA deal I've talked about plenty on this show, so listen to some uh, previous episodes if you want to learn more about that. And he comes back to the topic over and over all week as he announced efforts to ramp up border security. Why did the Trump administration say there's a crisis? In his Wednesday memo, Trump decrees a drastic surge of illegal activity at the border, including illicit drugs and illegal crossings. Later, his head of Homeland Security pointed to what she said was a notable spike in activity as she announced more details about the administration's plans to step up security. In her tweet, she says, After historic lows in illegal traffic last year, the numbers are spiking. March numbers up 37% from February, largest one-month change in at least eight years, and triple over March 2017. We must secure our border. As POTUS has said, all options are on the table. The number of people either caught trying to cross the southern border or rejected for admission increased 37% from February to March. Secretary Christian Nielsen, that's quite a name, K-R-S-T-J-E-N. So they're going to go with Kirsten or Jennifer, and they're like, let's just make one name, put it all together. Um, The sudden rise was driven largely by a jump in the number of people apprehended trying to cross illegally. A deeper look at the numbers, though, shows that they actually track with historic patterns in recent years. Critics accuse the administration of using the caravan to rile up immigration hardlines in Trump's base and says his decision to deploy troops isn't supported by the situation on the ground. Supporters note that sending troops to the border is nothing new. President George Bush and Barack Obama did it too. What actually happened at, happening at the border, as far as the National Guard troops go, not much yet. Same for the caravan, it's still hundreds of miles away. But governors in Texas, Arizona, and New Mexico have all said they're working with the administration on the troop request. Trump said Thursday he was considering sending anywhere from 2,000 to 4,000 National Guard troops to bolster border security, which seems like a foolish idea to me in my personal opinion. Arizona Governor Doug Ducey tweeted Friday that his office was working on plans to deploy about 150 troops to the border next week, and Texas officials said that Friday that 250 National Guard troops will be mobilized to the border within the next 72 hours, definitely short of this two to 4,000 that Trump seems to want. Our local officials and residents of the border region told CNN they have mixed feelings about the news. I think the, that the Border Patrol are well-trained, well-equipped, says Sheriff Tom Schmerber of Maverick County, Texas. I don't think we need the military here at the border. Yeah, I feel like a military border is more of a international affairs thing, not along the southern border of Texas and Mexico. But whatever. Uh, a Border Patrol's union spokesman said agents would be welcome the extra help. Once troops make it to the border, there are restrictions on what they can do. Laws dating back to the 
after the Civil War prevent federal troops from being involved in law enforcement. Instead, it's more likely they'll be taking on support tasks and freeing up more Border Patrol agents to make immigration arrests. One Border Patrol official said the agency would like to keep like troops to k- take on jobs just flying aerial missions, monitoring surveillance feeds, maintaining vehicles, and building access roads. All of which are probably really good things. Uh, what about California? State leaders in California have made no secret of their opposition to many of the Trump's administration's moves on immigration, and so far officials there have been tight-lipped about whether they'll deploy National Guard troops. Governor Jerry Brown hasn't made any public comment, though his office confirmed he participated in a call Thursday with other border state governors and Nielsen. Spokesman for the California Army National Guard said Wednesday the administration's request would be promptly reviewed. We look forward to more detail, including funding, duration, and end state. Lieutenant Colonel Tom Keegan said. Is the caravan still coming? Yes, but it's dispersed into smaller groups. Originally, more than 1,100 people set out on the journey across Mexico. Organizers say they still expect some 200 people to continue on the United States and ask for asylum. Speaking with CNN from the Mexican city of Puebla, many stressed they were fleeing violence in their home countries and hoping their family helped their families survive. We're not bringing any guns, and 32-year-old Karen Gallo, who was traveling with her husband and two children. There are no jobs, no justice, no laws in Honduras, she said. So, definitely seems like it's a good catalyst for Trump's continued persistence of wanting a border wall and increased border security, and though some of that might be fine and good, but... It's also another feel of deflection against the overturning of his administration and what's going on there and his approval ratings and the numbers and all of that. And there's the whole thing with Roseanne and how her numbers on her show are great. And I've actually watched the show and I think I talked about it last two weeks ago. I'm pretty sure. But if I didn't, it's been kind of a hectic week. So memory's a little fuzzy on some of that. But interesting to see that he came out and said, yay, numbers, because that's something Trump knows so much about. So... I guess moving on from this to Trump's constant battle with the press is Trump is going to skip the correspondence dinner again. Um, but he's not opposed to doing talk radio, which is weird. So President Trump attacked the White House press corps during an appearance on a New York talk radio program on fighting, calling reporters novelists. Which is funny because that's what they're going to be doing for the rest of his life is writing books and articles. I mean, you've seen it from every president. Even during his campaign, there's been plenty of books about him. And you saw how fired up he got about that Fire and Fury book. But, so, here's the article from the New York Times. It says, Donnie from D.C., you're on the air. President Trump, uh, buffeted by rumbling trade tensions with China, delicate negotiations with North Korea, and fallout from the Russia investigation. Take a few minutes this week to reach for the media equivalent of Linus's blanket, New York City Talk Radio. When he asked me to do the show, I said, I'm thinking I'm going to take a couple minutes, I'm going to do the show. In between North Korea and Iran and all the other things going on, Mr. Trump told the host of Bernie and Sid in the Morning on WABC AM, a drive time program that's not exactly a must listen beyond certain toll roads in the New York metropolitan area. Why is he talking to a morning show? I have no idea, but it just seems ridiculous. But. It plays to his ego and his audience, so maybe that's what he's doing it. And I gotta tell you, that's the kind of guy you are, sir, replied Bernard McGurk, a co-host on longtime Trump Fred. Oh, that explains it. That's why we love you. The interview, which aired Friday morning, was taped on Thursday. The president of Queens native grew up immersed in the jabbering, elbows-out culture of talk radio. Province of swaggers, swaggers like the sports host Mike Francesca, Mr. Trump, who regularly appeared on Howard Stern's program before his election, absorbed the practice of political leaders addressing constituents over the air. 
New York mayors have long held court by radio, including a memorable exchange in which Rudolph W. Giuliano dressed down the owner of a ferret. Weird. Uh, presidents often turn to unconventional news outlets when it comes to reassuring their base. Barack Obama's late tenure appearances on Between Two Ferns, the Zach Galifianakis web series, and the comedian Mike Marin's WTF podcast were lauded by liberal fans even as traditionalists scrumbled. Mr. Trump has proved Scrooge-like when it comes to doling out formal interviews. The major broadcast networks and Cena have not sat down with him in nearly a year. Wow. And his last White House news conference was in February of 2017. Another wow. Uh, his patience for rigorous interviews is thin, and he prefers cozier interlocutors like Janen Piero of Fox News or Mr. McGurk of WABC, a former Don Imus executive, producer, and on-air sidekick who on Friday praised Mr. Trump's speeches as beautiful, wonderful, fantastic, funny, and relaxed. I listened to those same speeches, and that's not something I'm getting. Uh, Mr. Trump did manage to make some news during the segment. He let slip that he was pretty unlikely to attend this year's White House Correspondents Association dinner, the clubby black tie gathering that presidents had attended for decades. Mr. Trump's absence from last year's dinner was the first presidential no-show since Ronald Reagan ailing from a gunshot wound skipped it in 1981. The Gipper called in from his hospital bed, though. Wow, that is a big tenure to skip altogether. Uh, there was buzz around a Trump appearance at this year's event after he delivered a monologue at the Gridiron Gala... Gridiron Club Gala in March, but that event was not televised. The correspondence center is carried live by some cable networks, and the optics of Mr. Trump's hobnobbing with the journalists he routinely derides may be off-brand. The White House has informed us that the president does not plan to participate in this year's dinner, but that he will actively encourage members of the executive branch to attend. Uh, Margaret Talev, president of the White House Correspondents Association, said in a statement on Friday. The White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders plans to appear in Mr. Trump's stead. Oh, that'll be a treat. Pearl necklace and all. On WBC, Mr. Trump showed no signs of detente with the press. In fact, he laced into the White House press corp, calling it so bad, it's so fake, it's so made up. They're like novelists, the president said, who offered no evidence for his claim. I call them novelists. They make up their sources. He deemed last year's correspondence center as a massive failure, prompting Mr. McGurk to chime in. Yes, yes, definitely. When asked for comment on Friday, the White House noted that Mr. Trump had pre-taped his radio appearances rather than calling it live. A producer at WABC said that Trump had recorded the interview on Thursday morning. The president said on the air that he was fond of Mr. McGurk, who, with his co-host Sid Rosenberg, started the show last week. So it's not even going on that long? Oh, okay. Mr. Trump's nine-minute appearance on WBC was not exactly an outlier when it comes to high-ranking administration officials making time for local New York programming. Late last month, Lawrence Kudlow, the president's chief economic advisor, and Ambassador John Bolton, the newly appointed national security advisor, granted interviews to the same relatively obscure radio show, The Cat's Roundtable, hosted by the Manhattan oil refinery magnate, supermarket owner, and former New York City Republican mayoral candidate, John Katsimatidis? Matitis? Lot of name. Uh, so will the president be appearing on the roundtable soon? I have not asked yet. Mr. That guy uh, wrote an email, although he added he did do pre-election. So, more fun from Trump, and speaking of New York, uh, there was a fire at Trump Tower, New York City, uh, in one of the apartments, and it looks like that person has passed away from the fire. So, um, my heart goes out to him, and I know it's made a lot of publicity being there a fire at Trump Tower, and people who are not fond of the president have made jokes about it, and I don't think it's polite to make jokes about someone dying who has nothing to do with Trump other than he lives in the building. 
people live in certain buildings all the time just because the owner of that building and his name is plastered on it is the president doesn't mean you should make jokes about that. That's just my own thoughts on it. And I guess speaking still of uh, New York City, uh, there was a fatal encounter between uh, New York PD cops. Um, bipolar Brooklyn man lasted less than 10 seconds. Uh, it took less than 10 seconds for the time to run out on Saheed Vassell. The deadly confrontation between the Crown Heights man and five NYPD officers ended as quickly as it began with the first shot fired in mere seconds after cops arrived on the scene, the police official told the Daily News. Vassal, 34, was carrying what looked like a gun when the cops pulled up in three cars, the official said Friday before the NYPD released additional video and 911 transcripts to the case. Drop it, drop it, drop it, the officer screamed before opening fire at the corner of Utica Avenue and Montgomery Street on Wednesday afternoon. The official estimated the entire encounter lasted from 5 to 10 seconds, with the officers identifying Vassal as the man mentioned in the 911 calls almost immediately. None of those involved, including two white officers, a Hispanic cop, a black officer, and a Southeast Asian policeman were wearing body cameras. All, including a white sergeant who responded to have more than six years on the job, the NYPD has not publicly identified them. It's really weird they have to state the ethnicities of all the cops. I guess they want to make sure it wasn't white cops, black victim situation, but still, that just seems weird to have that in the article. Uh, the expert of video made public showed more images of an erratic vassal walking along neighborhood sidewalk and randomly approaching passerbys. Three people are seen ducking for covers. Vassal points the shiny silver object in his right hand at the stunned pedestrians. The last one is a man who raises his hands and surrenders. The man points the gun-shaped object at him from Point Blake range. None of the four officers who fired a combined ten shots at Vassal were involved in any previous on-duty shootings. The same official said the fifth cop didn't fire his weapon. NYPD Chief of Detectives Robert Boyce said the cops had little time to ponder their options Wednesday after reporting to the 911 calls, reporting a man on the street pointing a gun. You saw how quickly this, that transpired. These officers didn't have much time. When you're presented with an immediate threat, it is different from being able to step back and talk. Boyce noted that seven of the eight NYPD line of duty deaths since he became chief of detectives in 2014 involved people with some kind of mental illness. Every situation is different, said Boyce, when asked if lethal force was the right response to the mentally ill suspect threatening officers. It depends on each incident. Sorry. Not easy to say policy-wise. Vassal was killed on the streets where he was from a familiar figure known to many in the neighborhood. Locals described him as a man seen constantly around the Brooklyn neighborhood hanging out with friends or doing odd jobs in local businesses. Security video shot in the seconds before his gun death showed him wielding a silver metal piece that resembled a gun and pointing at several pedestrians including a woman walking hand in hand with a small child. Before police opened fire, Vassal pointed the shiny object of metal at the arriving officers extending both his hands in a combat style stance. The video released Friday was about a minute longer than the clip released a day earlier and captured Vassal's frantic final few minutes alive. Additional transcripts of the 391 calls, including two made before the shooting, were also released, with one woman heard screaming and crying as she spoke with the emergency operator. He's coming back, she yells. He's coming back. He's crossing the street. Oh my god. Second caller, after reporting that Vassal was pointing something at people looking like a gun, was still speaking with the 911 dispatcher when the cops started shooting. Lay down, lay down, baby, the woman tells her daughter at the sound of gunfire. Let me grab my daughter. My daughter's in the street. Come, come over here. Come, you didn't see the crazy guy. The third call was unsure if the man she saw had long hair, short hair, or tattoos. She was sure of just one thing. He was carrying a weapon. Yes, he have a gun, a woman told the dispatcher. Where's the gun? The dispatcher asked, where is it? His hand. The dead man's family acknowledged the vassal, the father of 15-year-old son, refused to take medications for his condition. Susie Herman, NYPD Deputy Commissioner for Collaborative Policing, said 
Police were trying to eliminate the stigma of mental illness and steer people to treatment facilities. The cops are trying to come up with other alternatives where the police department is really the last resort and not the first resort. But we always have to make a distinction between an immediate, urgent, life-threatening situation and one where you can reflect upon a variety of options. I've watched the video, and it does look clearly like he's holding a gun. He was clearly uh, mentally disabled, or mentally unstable. Um, he was uh, had a hat, jacket, hood, kind of covered face. And he pointed something, and the way it was shaped, it does look like a gun. And pointing it like he's going to shoot you is something that would make anyone uneasy and fearful for their lives. And though I think maybe the cops could have tased him, but they didn't know if... Because certain people at tased, they can still fire a couple shots, and they definitely don't want to cause any other damage, so sometimes that's the way to go. But that's definitely ultimately in the cops' hands. We can't speak what's going through our minds in that situation with what's been going on with the, the gun debate and the crime rate and all of that. There's always people, the armchair people and the people actually like myself who can make comments on what's going on. But if you're not in that situation, you really don't know what the best course of action is. They just wanted to incapacitate him before he caused uh, any harm to life or harmless uh, uh, people in the situation. And I guess moving from that uh, unfortunate story to everyone's favorite social network, which is Facebook. Um, Facebook will now require political ads and pages with many followers to be authorized, which is great considering all of the fake uh, Russian-made adverts that were came in the last election. Um, Facebook changed how it manages pages and ads on both its social network and Instagram, which is great. The company will require political and issue-based ads and pages with large numbers of followers to be authorized. Advertisers will need to confirm their identity and location, which is great. Facebook said the changes are aimed at increasing transparency and accountability and preventing election interference. All good things. Facebook is tightening the noose on advertisers and changing how it manages pages and ads on its social network and Instagram. The company said on Friday that it would require both political ads and pages with large number of followers to be authorized. The new requirements are aimed at increasing transparency and accountability, giving users more information to evaluate trustworthiness and preventing election interference. Rob Goldman, Facebook's vice president of ads, and Alex Himmel, its vice president of local and pages, said in a blog post on the company's site. We know we were slow to pick up foreign interference in the 2016 U.S. elections, Goldman and Himmel wrote, by increasing transparency around ads and pages on Facebook, we can increase accountability for advertisers improving our services for everyone. Advertisers will need to confirm their identity and location to get authorization to run issue-based ads, such as those centered on current political topics or debates. Facebook will ban those that don't clear the process from running such ads on either its social network or Instagram. Each message from an approved advertiser will be labeled as a political ad and show who paid for it. Nice. Anyone who manages a Facebook page with a substantial number of followers will also need to be verified, and page owners who do not clear the process won't be able to publish posts on them, which is probably good for uh, like podcasts and stuff like that who have a large number of followers or uh, celebrities and other in influential people. The requirement is designed to clamp down on users with fake accounts running Facebook pages going forward. Facebook says visitors will also be able to see more information about the page, such as, its, such as name changes. Also good. The move to authorize issue-based ads comes on the top of changes Facebook rolled out in October when it said advertisers running federal election-related ads in the U.S. would be required to verify their identities and include disclosures. Facebook also said it will be working with third parties to develop a list of key issues that it would refine over time. The latest in a series of changes by Facebook in control of ads and pages. 
Facebook's other steps to prevent abuse of its service include a feature called View Ads that lets users see all the ads a Facebook page is running, even those that may not be targeted to them. The company is testing it in Canada and plans to launch it globally this summer. The company is also planning to release in June a serviceable, sorry, a searchable archive of all past political ads that would show not just their image and text, but the amount spent on them and the demographic information used to target them to Facebook users. With elections in the U.S., India, Brazil, Mexico, Pakistan, Hungary, and other countries this year, preventing election interference is a huge focus for Facebook right now, CEO Mark Zuckerberg said recently. It's one of his top priorities for 2018. Facebook will hire more people to assist with the effort, Zuckerberg said in a post on his Facebook account on Friday. Zuckerberg also voices support for the Honest Ads Act, a bill that would apply disclosure requirements for ads on TV or in print to political ads or online services. Said he hopes the moves would help raise the bar for all political advertising online. These steps by themselves won't stop all people trying to game the system, Zuckerberg wrote, but they'll make it a lot harder for anyone to do what the Russians did during the 2016 election and use fake accounts and pages to run ads. All of this sounds like great things. No, this was a big problem in the 2016 election, and this is something that I think is a welcome change. And for those of you who um, maybe have seen it come up on Facebook too, you can actually see Facebook's kind of ad profile on you. It knows, based on what you've posted, what you've liked, it kind of gets a general idea of what type of person you are to better target ads for you. Like, I looked at it and it says, like, uh, political affiliation, liberal, um, they know I don't live at home, they know I kind of where you live, they know you live in a apartment or multiple dwelling. They can find all this information about you, and you just have to go into your settings and under ads and your information, it lists all that, and you can choose to delete it so Facebook has to regenerate that. You can't block it all together, but you can at least have them start over for you. And I guess Facebook is also kind of doing this to kind of save off a lot of stuff that's been going on with them lately, which is a lot of scandals. So here's a list from Fortune about all of the Facebook scandals currently going on. Facebook in recent weeks has been plagued by yet another scandal as the social networking giant struggles to deal with the fallout from the Cambridge Analytica controversy. On Wednesday, it was revealed that initial figures estimating Facebook exposed the data of 50 million users without direct consent were actually much higher than reported closer to 87 million instead. And Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg said it's now set to testify in front of Congress next week. So definitely uh, next week's show, I will have more information on that. But this isn't the first time Facebook has been embroiled in controversy. The social media company has been involved in a number of scandals just over the past week alone. Here's a list of Facebook's ongoing dilemmas. Cambridge Analytica, the political analyst firm, acquired the data of millions of Facebook users from a researcher who collected it via a quiz app on the platform. Cambridge Analytica was also linked to President Trump's campaign during 2016 and has been used the data to build a psychological voter profiles ahead of the election. The revelations also sparked immediate backlash as politicians in Washington demanded Zuckerberg testify in front of Congress and calls to hashtag delete Facebook started trending on social media sites like Twitter after an ominous period of silence. Zuckerberg apologized and later agreed to testify on April 11th. Retaining users deleted videos. One of Facebook's response to the Cambridge Analytica incident was to allow users to download their data archive on the social network in order for users to fully understand what information Facebook stores. The move inadvertently triggered more outcry when users discovered that videos recorded on the platform that had been deleted were still present in Facebook's archive. Facebook in turn apologized and called the retention an unintentional bug, 
but they were still likely to reassure the public in the wake of a much larger ongoing scandal. Internal political struggles. Recent anger at Facebook has even come from employees within the company after a 2016 memo written by Facebook Vice President Andrew Bosworth leaked last week. In it, Bosworth appears to argue that Facebook's growth is more important than safety concerns, stirring outrage internally, according to BuzzFeed News. Maybe someone dies in a terrorist attack and coordinated on our tools, Bothers wrote. The outlet reported, we still connect people. The ugly truth is that we believe in connecting people so deeply that anything that allows us to connect more people more often is de facto good. Wow. Bosworth confirmed in a statement on Twitter last week that he wrote the memo. I don't agree with the post today, and I didn't agree with it even when I wrote it. I didn't agree with it when he wrote uh, He said, the purpose of the post, like many others I have written internally, was to bring the service issue... I felt deserved more discussion with the broader company. Russian meddling and fake news. One of the dominating storylines of the 2016 presidential election was Facebook's role in allowing Russian propaganda to spread across the social network. Facebook admitted last year that fake Russian Facebook accounts had purchased more than $100,000 in ads, which U.S. intelligence agencies said were intended to influence the election in favor of Donald Trump. Facebook was additionally implicated in its role of distributing misinformation, a.k.a. fake news, from phony news sites more often than not targeted Hillary Clinton during the campaign, but rampant rampant on both sides nonetheless. The problem here are complex, both technically and philosophically, Zuckerberg wrote days after election night, discussing the company's plans to combat fake news. We believe it's giving people a a voice, which means erring on the side of letting people share what they want whenever possible. We need to be careful not to discourage sharing of opinions, or to mistakenly restrict accurate content. Public profiles have been scrapped. Another fallout from the Cambridge Analytica scandal was Facebook's revelation on Wednesday that malicious actors use the platform search tools to obtain personal information on millions of users. Until Wednesday, third parties could do this merely by running a script that enters a phone number or email address into Facebook's search function in order to create a database. Given that scale and sophistication of the activity we've seen, we believe most people on Facebook could have had their public profiles scraped in this way. Chief Technology Officer Mike Schroffer wrote in a statement, So we have now disabled this feature. We're also making changes to account recovery to reduce the risk of scraping as well. Secret deletion of Zuckerberg's messages. Facebook users can't delete messages from someone's inbox they sent messages to. But Zuckerberg can, according to a recent TechCrunch report. The site reviewed old messages sent between sources and Zuckerberg, and strangely, Zuckerberg's messages were removed despite their response still being viewable. Facebook told the news, the outlet, it was a corporate security measure. After Sony Pictures' emails were hacked in 2014, we made a number of changes to protect our executives' communication, the company said in a statement to TechCrunch. These included limiting the retention period of Mark's messages in Messenger. We did so in full compliance with our legal obligation to preserve messages. But questions may over why Facebook never publicly disclosed these measures. On Friday, Facebook said it would create an unsend feature within the next few months, and that Zuckerberg would be barred from using that feature until it was available to everyone. Photos and link scans over Messenger. Another privacy-related revelation over the past week, Facebook scans images and links sent between users via Messenger. According to Bloomberg, the company says the practice is done in order to flag content that doesn't adhere to the platform standards. While the practice might sound good in theory, some users took issue with it at the time when Facebook's ability to uphold privacy is under scrutiny. Facebook stands with a measure, for example, on Messenger. When you send a photo, our automated system scans it using photo, match technology detect, known child exploitation imagery, or when you send a link, we scan it for malware or viruses. A Facebook Messenger spokeswoman told Bloomberg, Facebook designed these automated tools so we can rapidly stop abusive behavior on our platform. 
Uh, spreading hate speech in Myanmar. Once again, Zuckerberg came under fire this week after he told Vox's Ezra Klein that Facebook helped snuff out an anti-Rohingya propaganda through the messenger scans mentioned above. While conceding that users can take the advantage of Facebook's tools, Zuckerberg said, in that case, our systems detect that that's going on. We stop the messages from going through. In response, six organizations in Myanmar signed a letter to Zuckerberg rejecting the CEO's claim. The messenger platform, at least in Myanmar, does not provide a reporting function which would have enabled concerned individuals to flag the messages to you. The letter read, though, these dangerous messages deliberately pushed to large numbers of people. Many people who received them say they did not personally know the sender. Your team did not seem to have picked up on the pattern for all of your data. It would seem that it was a personal connection with senior members of your team which led to the issue being dealt with. So it seems like Facebook has a lot going on. Really, in this day and age, you can't just hashtag delete Facebook like we talked about on a previous episode, but something to keep in mind that companies as big as this that are constantly pushing to become a central hub of news and information and connecting with friends and family and people of importance, just like Twitter, it's just these issues are going to keep coming up and you just have to be mindful of what you share on social media and on your digital life out there. And really that's the four big news things I wanted to cover this week. It's been kind of hectic going on, like I said before, but I'll be back bringing you as much new content as I can week in and week out. I want to thank you for joining me here on this episode. We are still wrapping up the Road to Infinity War. Got a couple more weeks before Avengers Infinity War comes out. So please check us out on Patreon for $3. You can have early access to our shows plus all of the MC reviews. And on Wednesday, you get to listen to my review, which will be tomorrow, on Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. So definitely want to check that out. We're getting near the end there. Only got a couple more left. Thor Ragnarok, Black Panther, Spider-Man. Those are all, I think, the last ones we have to work listen to. So definitely check us out. As always, listen to me every week on Tuesdays. I'm on social media at The Poor Report. And yes, have a great week. Thanks again for listening.